This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 32 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. We can't get any more contemporary than the battle to prevent the counting of every vote cast in the presidential election of 2020. And there are a lot of votes, a record number, in fact. When all the votes have been counted, and I hope all the votes are counted, as many as 165 million people will have voted. There already has been a second record that was shattered. Democrat Joe Biden's total popular vote has exceeded that of any presidential candidate in U.S. history. And that number keeps going up as the vote count continues. On the downside, in too many states, voter turnout was actually lower than in past years. In New Jersey, for example, where I live, only 57% of eligible voters cast ballots, which is about 7.5% fewer voters than in 2016 and 10% lower than in 2008. California registered only 46.5% of eligible voters, which is 10% fewer than in 2016 and 14% fewer than 2008. That's a sad commentary on so many levels, and it's probably a sin according to Jewish law, as we'll discuss. But what makes it even worse is the effort now underway by President Trump and his team to keep states from counting all of the ballots cast, and along with it, their attempts to undermine the people's confidence in the election process. And then there's the disenfranchising potential created by the Electoral College. We'll get to that, too. The topic for this week, therefore, is what Jewish law has to say about the need to vote, and more important, about the need to count every vote. I'm sure that some of you, at least, are rolling your eyes right now. After all, what could halacha, what could Jewish law possibly have to say about voting, much less about counting those votes? Keep listening. As these podcasts are meant to convey, Jewish law is as relevant today as it has ever been, if not more so, because its purpose is to steer us towards creating a more just, more equitable, more inclusive, and more caring world than we have today. And that absolutely includes participating in free and fair elections. The idea that the people get to choose their leaders goes all the way back to the Torah. That's where we're told that it's the people who should get to choose their king, No one but the people themselves gets to make the final decision. God can nominate a candidate, but the people have the final say. We see this play out in the choice of David as king of a united Israel. Even though God chose David for that job, David nevertheless had to be confirmed by the people. Quote, all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron, Hebron. Unquote, to choose him, it says. Then it says that, quote, all the elders of Israel, unquote, meaning the heads of the tribes, met with David to draw up the terms of his kingship, after which he was publicly anointed. Obviously, all the people of all the tribes couldn't show up at David's doorstep, and there were no such things as voting booths or ballots. 
So the process by which the people made their choice was quite cumbersome, but it worked. Each household would meet, each household member would vote, and the majority ruled. Then the head of each household would attend a meeting of the clan to which it belonged and would cast his vote according to what the household decided. The clan leaders then would carry the majority decision to the tribal meeting. And finally, the tribal leaders would gather as the council of elders and register each tribe's vote. Again, the majority ruled. As cumbersome a process as it was, it meant that all the people had a vote in deciding who should lead them. It didn't always work out that way, of course, because kings often made up their own rules as they went along, but that was what the Torah intended. We know that's what it intended because Moses, at least, kept to that system. Over and again, God tells Moses to, quote, speak to the children of Israel, unquote. The only way Moses could do that was by speaking to the elders who spoke to their clan leaders who carried the message back to their households. They would then reverse the process and inform Moses of their decision. The people, all the people, even had to ratify the covenant God offered them in his personal appearance before them at Sinai. Quote, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and obey. That the people must choose their leaders is codified in the Talmud. We're told, for example, that the sage Rabbi Yitzchak said, quote, One may only appoint a leader over a community if he consults with the community. Unquote. In other words, the people have to agree to the appointment. Rabbi Yitzchak then gave this example. During the early stage of their 40-year stay in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, God instructed Moses to build a portable sanctuary, the Mishkan. After giving them the barest of details on how to build it, God told Moses that he had chosen an artisan named Bitzalel to oversee the work, said Rabbi Yitzchak, quote, The Lord said to Moses, Moses, is Bitzalel a suitable choice in your eyes? Moses said to him, Master of the universe, if he is a suitable appointment in your eyes, then he certainly is suitable in my eyes. Nevertheless, God said to him, go and tell Israel and ask their opinion. Unquote. God made the appointment. Moses seconded it, but still the people had to vote on it. Not even God gets to make leadership decisions without putting it to a vote. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Rabbis through the ages have reaffirmed not just the need for people to vote, but the requirement that they must vote. For example, in the very early days of the state of Israel, only people who paid a special poll tax of three Israeli pounds could vote. At that time, one of the leading rabbinic authorities of the first half of the 20th century was Rabbi Avraham Yishayahu Karolitz of Blessed Memory, he lived in Bnei Brak, and he's better known by the name of his most influential work on Jewish law, the Chazon Ish, which means vision of a man. He also was the go-to rabbi for many of the ritually rigid 
non-Hasidic Haredi Jews living in Israel and beyond. Not too long before his death in 1953, he was approached by a man who was disturbed because there was an election coming up and he didn't have the money needed to pay the poll tax. The Chazon Ish asked the man if he owned a pair of tefillin. The man said that of course he did. Said the Chazon Ish, sell the tefillin. Quote, you can borrow tefillin from someone else, but you cannot borrow from someone else the privilege to vote. Unquote. As word got around about what he had said, a colleague came to ask him to explain his statement. Said the Chazon Ish, quote, I'm not worried that this Jew will not be putting on tefillin. If need be, he'll borrow a pair. I am afraid that he won't perform this other mitzvah, voting in the election, unquote. In other words, according to the Chazon Ish, voting is a mitzvah, an obligation imposed by Jewish law that's of such importance that it even supersedes owning a pair of tefillin. That opinion, that voting was an obligation imposed on Jews by Jewish law, in other words, that it's a mitzvah, is widely held. In 2004, for example, the late Rabbi Yosef Shalom Eliyashiv, the then leader of Israel's non-Hasidic Haredi community, said this to his followers, quote, everyone who has voting rights must vote, unquote. He didn't say that they should vote. He said they must vote. That same year, when President George W. Bush was being challenged here by then-Senator John Kerry, a group of U.S.-based Haredi rabbis issued the following statement, quote, The Torah giants of previous generations ruled that it is proper for every Jew to vote in the elections of his country. How much more so are the citizens of the United States obligated to join in the elections of their nation? Let no one excuse himself from his duty with the argument that in so large a country as the United States, his individual vote is meaningless, for we have seen many elections decided by several hundred votes, unquote. There are so many other citations I can offer, but the point has been made. Voting in an election is a requirement under Jewish law. It's a mitzvah. And if voting is a mitzvah, then it follows that counting those votes, every one of those votes, is also a mitzvah. That's precisely what the current occupant of the Oval Office, and hopefully for not much longer, once stopped. He doesn't want all the votes to be counted, except in those places where he thinks it could help him, such as in Arizona or Nevada. And he keeps making bizarre claims of massive fraud going on, bizarre claims that too many responsible Republican leaders are echoing for reasons that are beyond me. Yesterday, for example, Trump sent out a three-word tweet to his followers in all capital letters, quote, stop the count, unquote. Then last night, he added fuel to the fire he's trying to ignite by delivering a rambling televised statement in which he repeated his basis claims of massive voter fraud and said that the election was being stolen from him. Quote, we were winning in all the key locations by a lot, actually, and then our numbers started miraculously getting whittled away in secret. And we're still ahead by a lot, but not as many because they're finding ballots. All of a sudden, we have some mail-in ballots. It's amazing how those mail-in ballots are so one-sided, too. Unquote. 
Trump continued the tirade in a series of tweets all through the night into this morning. For all I know, he's still tweeting. Not all Republicans, of course, are echoing him. His comments yesterday prompted 20 Republican former U.S. attorneys to call those comments, quote, baseless and reckless, unquote. The comments, they said, have the potential to, quote, undermine the rule of law as it applies to our electoral process, unquote. They have another potential as well. They could bring violence to our streets. Already we've seen Trump supporters, a number of whom were openly carrying weapons, demanding that Arizona keep counting its votes. Joe Biden leads in Arizona, but the Associated Press and Fox News, in fact, early on called the state for Biden, and the demonstrators threateningly wanted to make sure that every vote counted there in the hope that mail-in ballots would reverse the result. That, by the way, is an irony in itself. Trump and his team of lawyers have initiated a barrage of lawsuits to stop the counting in states where he's ahead and the totals are narrowing, but they want the count to continue in the states where he's running behind Biden. Too many of Trump's followers are prone to violence and his increasingly bizarre cries that the election is being stolen from him will only serve to make those followers angry enough to take matters into their own hands. Those demonstrators in Arizona may be harbingers for very dark days to come unless the people around Trump force him to come to his senses. You can't tell these people to stop the count and expect them to sit quietly by and watch Trump lose. And it doesn't take a lot of people to start a civil war. If Trump loses and doesn't concede, as seems increasingly likely with each tweet, they will take to the streets. And when they do, many of them will come heavily armed. For them, Trump's rhetoric is a call to arms. In any case, Trump doesn't want all the votes counted, and neither does the Republican National Committee, which is a party to most, if not all, of his spurious lawsuits. Even if every vote is counted, however, there is the matter of the Electoral College. Five times in our history, at least so far, the winner of the popular vote lost the presidency in the Electoral College, including in 2016, which is how Trump won. In the Bush-Gore election of 2000, Al Gore won the popular vote, but George Bush won in the Electoral College. Presidential politics was dramatically changed by that because it created the so-called battleground states, whose votes we've been watching so closely these last few days. In every election since Bush-Gore, especially including this nail-biter we're living through, these so-called battleground states were the only ones of real concern to the two major candidates. They've shown very little interest in states that were considered safe for one or the other. That was the case in Bush versus Kerry in 2004, in Obama versus McCain in 2008, in Obama versus Romney in 2012, in Trump versus Clinton in 2016. And it was like that this year. Here's why. In the Bush-Gore contest, the election came down to a single state, Florida. It went for Bush, and so did its 25 electoral votes, and that gave Bush the election. He ended up with 271 electoral votes, one electoral vote more than he needed to become the 43rd president of the United States. After the dust settled on that contest, the what-ifs began. 
Specifically, what if Gore hadn't ceded Ohio to Bush midway in the 2000 campaign, but spent more time and money there? After all, only 167,000 votes separated the two men when the polls closed that year. Ohio's 21 electoral votes would have given Gore the win. Or what if Gore had spent more time in Tennessee, his home state? Or what if he had spent a few more days in New Hampshire, a state he narrowly lost? The handwriting on the wall was suddenly very clear. Elections were no longer won state by state, election district by election district, voter by voter. They were decided by racking up 270 votes in the Electoral College. That's how every campaign has been structured starting the 2004 election. Candidates routinely write off the states that either candidate was guaranteed to win, meaning most of the country, and concentrate nearly all the resources, financial and human, on those states that are considered in play. Trump campaigned in New York three times, but he visited Arizona and Nevada seven times, Michigan nine times, Wisconsin ten times, Pennsylvania thirteen times, North Carolina 14 times, Florida 17 times, and Virginia 26 times. There were 23 states that he never set foot in. If COVID-19 hadn't kept Joe Biden away from the campaign trail for most of the election season, we would see similar numbers from him. As it is, in the final weeks, he concentrated his in-person campaigning to states like Florida, Georgia, Arizona, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, of course, Pennsylvania. That in itself is a dangerous trend for American democracy. Our first-term presidents since 2000, Bush, Obama, and Trump, have shown a proclivity for doing things for battleground states in the hopes of currying favor with voters there at re-election time. That trend is only likely to accelerate after the lessons from this election sink in. Trump, of course, carried the trend in a different direction as well. Not only did he do things for some of his favorite battleground states, he was not above warning other battleground states that they either played ball or suffered the consequences. At one of his campaign stops in Pennsylvania, for example, he did what he often did on the campaign trail. He attacked local officials for imposing the kinds of COVID-19 restrictions he so despises. Pennsylvania's governor is a Democrat named Tom Wolf. In that campaign stop, Trump demanded that Wolf open up the state and then issued a not-so-veiled threat if the governor didn't comply, suggesting that federal aid funds would dry up. Quote, I'll remember it, Tom. I'm going to remember it, Tom, unquote. He then put his hand to his ear and mockingly imitated the governor phoning him. Quote, Hello, Mr. President. This is Governor Wolf. I need help. I need help, unquote. Trump then bobbed his head up and down as the crowd laughed and cheered. Trump also has tried, at least, to turn his presidential back on states that were not likely to go for him. New York and New Jersey, for example, are desperate for federal aid, and that aid hasn't been forthcoming. They've been complaining about it for months. Then there's California. The wildfires there have been intensely devastating this year. But when the state asked him to issue a federal disaster declaration so it could qualify for federal aid, he refused. 
He reversed that decision two days later, but only because he was under intense criticism, even from Republicans. If one person, one vote is ever going to mean anything again, the Electoral College must be reformed. It doesn't have to be done away with, however. There is wisdom in the system, after all, because it affords small states protection from being dominated nationally by the big states. Rather than winner-take-all, however, the system could be restructured to award two electoral votes to the winner of a state, with the rest of the electoral votes apportioned in some way. For example, Maine and Nebraska have such a system. They base it on the number of congressional districts a candidate wins. Another possible method would be to allocate electoral votes based on the percentage of the popular vote a candidate receives in the state. Either way, the Electoral College would still matter, but so would all the states, and so would all our votes. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai dot o-r-g w-w-w dot s-h-a-m-m-a-i dot o-r-g w-w-w dot shamai dot o-r-g and email me please shabbat shalom stay healthy stay safe and take a moment to pray for our country